You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. They're destined to be the most challenging and significant Justice Department criminal investigations in years involving former President Donald Trump. The investigation into interference with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election and the investigation into classified documents found at Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Such an an appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed Jack Smith, who has a long career of fighting public corruption, police brutality, and war crimes, as a new special counsel to oversee those high-profile and politically sensitive investigations. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter and English. Attorney General Merrick Garland cited Trump formally entering the presidential race and Joe Biden's expected candidacy as reasons why independent special counsel was in the public interest. Is that a good call, do you think? There are really two sets of opinions on whether or not the appointment of a special counsel is the right move at this point. It's something that the attorney general's office has been talking about for some time, and it was really precipitated by former President Trump's announcement that he is now a candidate for the presidency, as well as President Biden's stated intention to run for re-election. This created, at least in the mind of Merrick Garland, the attorney general, a conflict of interest since he would be investigating somebody who has now announced that he is running to replace the sitting president. But there is some controversy to it because there's concern that it could slow down the investigation. So among former federal prosecutors and people who are familiar with the special counsel role, there's a split of opinion as to whether or not this is really the right move at this point. Why are some people concerned that appointing a special counsel means a slowdown in the investigation? The special counsel was appointed to continue two investigations that are now ongoing with the Department of Justice. The first is oversight of the investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And the second is the role that Trump may have played in the handling of classified records that he removed from office and took to Mar-a-Lago, his house in Florida. 
Those are both investigations that have been ongoing for some time, and the team of Department of Justice investigators and prosecutors who are involved in that will continue. So it's not going to be starting from scratch, but there is some concern that the appointment of a special prosecutor could slow down this process. And because of the upcoming election, the special prosecutor is really under the clock right now to try to complete this investigation one way or the other and make a decision about whether or not to bring charges. This is already being called by many Republicans a politicization of the Justice Department. Well, there certainly is no law prohibiting an investigation and an indictment of somebody who's running for office. In fact, there's no law prohibiting the investigation and indictment of a sitting elected official, for example, a United States senator or a governor. That has happened all the time in our history. The only prohibition under Department of Justice rules is that the Department of Justice will not indict a sitting United States president, which was the roadblock that the Mueller investigation ran into when they investigated potential ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. And that was something that Mueller was ultimately criticized for. But here, the Department of Justice absolutely has the right and the ability to investigate whether or not anything was done illegally by somebody. And simply the fact that they've announced that they're running for president does not shield them from that investigation. Having said that, however, they are a bit under the gun because they have to try to complete this investigation in a timely fashion so that it will not interfere with the upcoming election. I think as a realistic matter, if charges are to be brought against President Trump, it will likely have to be done sometime in the spring of 2023 because they do not want to bring charges and then have a trial pending while an election is coming up. So if they're going to bring charges and actually try a case, Before the 2024 election, there's not much time left. These charges will likely have to be brought by the spring of 2023. Department of Justice regulations say that you cannot bring charges within 60 or 90 days ahead of an election. But here we're really talking about a situation where if charges are brought, the right thing to do is to allow enough time to have that trial actually take place before the election. And bear in mind, this is not going to be an ordinary trial, and it may drag out longer than most trials would. Typically in the federal system, if somebody's indicted for a federal crime, you can expect to go to trial within about a year. But if there were to be an indictment of a former president, it would certainly raise some new questions of law, some novel issues that would likely be litigated and probably drag the case out even longer. So while the special prosecutor is getting on board here, and while he does have the benefit of having Department of Justice investigators and prosecutors who have been working on this case who will continue to work under his supervision, he has a steep mountain to climb here to try to learn exactly what's been going on and make some very big decisions in the near term. Smith said in a statement, the pace of the investigations will not pause or flag under my watch. I will exercise independent judgment and will move the investigations forward expeditiously and thoroughly to whatever outcome the facts and the law dictate. Looking at his background, is he the right person for this job? I think Jack Smith is as good a person as you could possibly get for this role. Nobody is going to be perfect because there's nobody who could be appointed who would satisfy everybody. There's going to be a hardcore base of Republicans and Trump supporters who are going to believe that any investigation is politically motivated. And then there's going to be a hardcore base 
of Democratic supporters, people who believe that the Department of Justice is not moving quickly enough. But there is a middle ground here, independent people who are not tremendously politically involved, who are going to be watching closely. And I think they will look at Jack Smith as somebody who is essentially nonpartisan. He's a career prosecutor. He's worked in the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. He was chief of the public integrity section in Washington. And most recently, he was the chief prosecutor investigating war crimes in Kosovo for a court in The Hague. So he's somebody who really has been involved as a prosecutor in many high-level cases. But at the same time, he's really not very well known outside of prosecutorial circles. He's certainly not somebody who is political. He's certainly not someone who's ever received a political appointment. So he does fit the bill in terms of being a career prosecutor, somebody who has a reputation for working extremely hard and getting to the bottom of a case. And he does not have any obvious political connections to either party. He's a registered independent. Would Garland have appointed a special counsel if charges were not under consideration already? Well, that's a great question, and it does suggest that charges are being seriously considered. The mere fact that Merrick Garland has taken this extraordinary step and appointed a special prosecutor suggests that he has already come to the conclusion that there is a possibility that charges will be brought here. I don't think that he would have taken this step unless the evidence had at least passed a threshold where there was a possibility that charges could be brought. You don't typically bring a special prosecutor simply to wind down an investigation. He obviously believes that there is credible evidence here that needs to be investigated, and that's why he named Jack Smith as a special prosecutor. So what happens? Smith presents a report to Garland, and then what? Yes. So the appointment of the special prosecutor does provide some cover to Merrick Garland in that it does insulate the investigation from a direct report to political appointees within the Department of Justice. So the special prosecutor will not be subject to -to day-to-day oversight by the attorney general. He will not answer to senior political appointees in the department. And he basically can't be removed by the attorney general except for cause. So in other words, unless there's some misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, some really egregious situation in which the independence and the unbiased nature of the investigation is seriously challenged, Attorney General Garland is stuck with this special prosecutor. At the end of the day, though, it is the Attorney General's decision about whether or not to proceed with a prosecution. The special prosecutor makes a recommendation. That recommendation ultimately goes to the Attorney General, who can then either accept or reject it. However, if he declines to take the recommendation of the special counsel, he has to notify Congress and explain his decision. What Smith will do at the end of his investigation is submit a confidential report to Garland explaining those prosecutorial decisions, and then Garland can decide what to do with that report. He can either make the entire report public, he can make some of it public, he can redact portions of it, but ultimately it goes to Garland for the final decision on what to do. The reason that this does provide some level of insulation is because that first decision, the decision that's being made by the person who is most familiar with the facts, who's in charge of the investigation, is somebody who is independent from the attorney general's office. And it is going to be extremely difficult 
for Merrick Garland or, frankly, any AG not to follow the recommendation of the special counsel under these circumstances. We've seen many special counsel investigations drag on and on. I mean, the John Durham investigation is three years and counting with two failed trials. Is that a danger? Well, that is the peril of appointing the special counsel and why some people criticize Merrick Garland for doing this and not simply bringing these charges by the Department of Justice, frankly, long ago. There's people who look at the classified documents case, for example, and believe that it's fairly clear cut and that the Department of Justice should have moved on this months ago. But at this point, given the fact that President Trump has announced his candidacy and President Biden has announced his intention to run for re-election, I think Merrick Garland really had no choice but to appoint the special counsel. Now, as you say, the special counsel's history has been somewhat checkered. The history of the special counsel really began after Watergate, where Congress passed the Ethics in Government Act. And that was a situation where the attorney general, along with a three-judge panel from the Court of Appeals, would appoint a special prosecutor. Those are the kinds of cases that Americans will remember really ran on and on and some say out of control. Examples of that were the Iran-Contra affair, the Whitewater controversy, and of course, most famously, the Lewinsky scandal and the investigation by Kenneth Starr that led to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Those were all special prosecutors that were appointed under the Ethics in Government Act. But because of those investigations and because there was a view by Congress that once special prosecutors were appointed, they essentially ran amok. They went on for years and years. The scope of the investigations went far beyond what their initial mandate was. Congress allowed that law to lapse in 1999. And since then, there's been no federal statutory law governing the appointment of a special counsel. So what happens here is that the attorney general, under certain regulations, can appoint a special counsel. And at that point, the special counsel runs the investigation, but does ultimately have to report to Merrick Garland. And to some extent, the attorney general can check in with the special counsel and try to move the investigation along. But as a practical matter, once this is handed over to the special counsel, it's really in the hands of Jack Smith, and it'll be up to him how quickly to move this investigation and where this investigation will ultimately lead. Does Smith have any parameters for how much money he spends, how much staff he puts on? All of the details about the size of his staff, about his budget, that all has to be run through the Department of Justice. But I think it's fair to assume that Jack Smith will be given whatever resources he believes are necessary in order to complete this investigation. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. 
athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, who claimed her company could detect diseases with just a few drops of blood, was sentenced to more than 11 years in prison for defrauding investors. Holmes built her blood testing startup into a $9 billion company that collapsed in scandal. Before the judge handed down the sentence, Holmes cried as she apologized to victims and investors, saying she took full responsibility for Theranos. However, she did not admit to committing any crimes. My guest is Ann Coughlin, a professor at the University of Virginia Law School who specializes in feminist jurisprudence. This seems like a tough sentence. The sentencing guidelines max was up to 20 years. The probation office recommended nine. The prosecutors asked for 15, and Holmes' lawyer asked for 18 months of house arrest. Does this seem on the tough side? Well, I certainly thought it seemed tough when I read the sentence. 11 years is a really significant chunk of anyone's life. I think it's very common to see the different parties, the two sides, the probation office, and then the judge landing in different places. One thing that strikes me about the case, of course, is she elected to go to trial. So, you know, we would have seen a more lenient sentence come out of a plea bargaining situation, presumably. But once she made the, you know, the decision that she was going to go all in and say that she was not responsible for this conduct or that she lacked the mens rea, you know, she had a couple of different kinds of claims going for her. She decides she's going to go to trial. If she loses, then, of course, the sentencing, any kind of sentencing leniency that she would expect is is gone. So I guess as we're speaking, I'm not that surprised. The judge knows her. He sat through an entire trial. He's also sat through Sonny Balwani's trial. And he said that Holmes' refusal to accept responsibility for the fraud counted against her in his sentencing decision. And even at the sentencing, when she spoke, she said she had tried to realize the dream too quickly and do too many things at once. So she never accepted her guilt. No, she never did. And and that's very striking. I mean, that seems to have been her M.O. from the very beginning of the lodging of the accusations against her. You know, again, it's hard to get inside her mind. Maybe she herself feels as though she didn't do anything wrong. But the judge, as you said, was deeply familiar with the evidence in her case and in Balwani's case and was able to point, I take it, to you know, very substantial, indeed, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that she lied and that she harmed people and that she was culpable. And I I guess for the judge, it just became rather too much to bear when she continued to refuse to acknowledge any responsibility at all. So it doesn't surprise me that that would be held against her. And then, of course, this problem for her, this failure to accept responsibility thread is part and parcel of her entire 
theory of defense. Her whole theory of defense was, I'm not guilty. I'm not responsible. I was coerced to do these things by an abusive boyfriend. That was one thread. I'm not responsible. He is. I am a victim here. That That's one theory. Um, and, and I take it that when she makes that assertion, that is entirely compatible with the, the idea, I'm not responsible, right? Um, why would you blame me? He's the one who's at fault. Um, and that, that once she fails to prove that case at the trial and she's found guilty, you know, then it's, it's kind of, she's in a very awkward position, right? She's been denying responsibility all along. And the judge clearly didn't buy it and, and, and found that it was, again, a factor that should lead to a more severe sentence. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that she got pregnant while she was awaiting trial and had a baby, and now she's pregnant again. Her lawyers positioned her as a caring friend and loving mother with a toddler at home and a second child on the way, whose incarceration would only prove detrimental to her family and community. And her partner, Billy Evans, who's a hotel heir, sent all these pictures of them together and with their child in his letter to the judge. Did that backfire in a way? She chose to get pregnant. Do you think that a judge should take that into account? So that's a really tough question, isn't it? And the the issue is one that we've dealt with historically. Um, When women are pregnant, when women are mothers, how should the criminal law take account of those facts when deciding what their punishment should be? I mean, I take it that we might and presumably do in some cases ask similar questions about male defendants. Of course, a man is not pregnant, but there are many cases when men have children, and you could make similar arguments about how the punishment is going to harm their families. You can make arguments about how they are loving fathers and and perhaps husbands, you know, outside of their their criminal activities. So it's a really interesting question as to whether we would give more weight to that kind of concern in a case involving a pregnant person and a mother such as Elizabeth Holmes. So that's that's really tough, you know, because you can end up in a position where you worry that if you accept Holmes's claim that her punishment should be reduced because she is a mother, um, that that then reinforces, you know, stereotypes about women, that they're delicate and nurturing, and therefore they shouldn't be punished as severely. So that's quite difficult, you know, and then we also want to be thinking, too, about the truthfulness of it. I'm, I'm sure it is a big impact on her family to have her to spend a long period of time incarcerated as opposed to spending time at home. But that's a concern that would come up in any case where you have a parent. And so it's hard to know how to think about it here. You know, again, we we have to think about all of those nuances. The other thing at the same time is I don't see why it can't both be true that she's, you know, loving to her toddler and yet committing these crimes for which she deserves to be punished. You know, her substantive claim at the trial was, you know, I was a victim. I was abused. I was not responsible for this. I was easily manipulated that, you know, somehow she was a vulnerable person. And that's sort of consistent with this vision of femininity that might support giving her a, a more lenient sentence. But again, I, I take it the judge just didn't buy it. The fact that she might be loving mother to a, to a toddler and that she's now pregnant 
is not incompatible with also seeing her as committing criminal fraud and then presumably it's not incompatible with punishing her for that. As for this larger question, how do we treat parents in the criminal justice system? That's a really tough call. But I can imagine it might be hard for some observers to have sympathy for her because she has so many assets, so many resources, so many ways that she could have avoided violating the criminal law, right? And it was her choices that are culpable and that are taking her away from her family. The judge got more than 100 letters from people in all walks of of life, and they painted her as this virtuous person, this victim of circumstance. And then at the sentencing, you had a relative, the father of one of the whistleblowers, talking about how, how horrible she was to him, how he was so afraid because she had people following him that he slept with a knife under his pillow. I mean, do those letters ever do anything? So, um, yes and no. I mean, I I would think at the margins they can have some effect. I mean, the judge obviously is aware of the facts that came out at the trial, and then the judge will be thinking about the impact of the sentence, not just on homes, but on the entire community. What's the value of sentencing her more or less severely? You know, how does a particular sentence serve the interests of the criminal law, the criminal law policy? What kind of injuries did she inflict on individual victims in this case, an actual person who was terrified, presumably by her behavior, as well as the numerous potential patients who she put at risk, healthcare providers and so forth. So yes, the judge is going to be weighing all of that kind of impact when deciding what the sentence would be. But again, if I was the judge too, I would really be thinking hard about this question about you know, her privilege and the fact that this is someone who was not committing a crime, uh, committing fraud, trying to gain some kind of, you know, financial benefit because she was in desperate circumstances, right? Someone who you really felt perhaps sympathy for, again, you blame them, but sympathy for the fact that their lives were, were out of control and they were committing crimes, say, to take care of their family or something like that. It's just very hard to give her leniency and not to recognize the other kinds of, you know, serious conditions that people might confront when committing crimes. And this, again, the picture that emerges at sentencing of someone who was very, very focused on her own self-aggrandizement and obviously building up this tremendous fortune for herself, almost at whatever cost. This was a very high-profile case. There are TV shows, documentaries, books, and the prosecutors asked the judge to send a message to deter future startup fraud schemes. And the judge drew a distinction between investors who take big risks backing ambitious founders and those who don't know that they're being lied to. So was it important for him to also send a message with this really high-profile sentencing? I think so. Um, but that all will remain to be seen what we're focusing on here again are what are the purposes of the criminal sanction? You know, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because we want to 
impose on Holmes her just desserts. You know, this is what justice demands. Um, she's done wrong, and and so she should be punished. You know, pretty seriously because the harm she inflicted were serious. Or are we thinking, well, really, the value of the sentence is to send message to other folks who were working in that space. You know, there is a line between let's say, sort of ambitious puffery, you know, or, you know, young people who have terrific ideas that they're not quite ready to deliver on, you know, sort of optimistic projections versus the out and out lie. You know, we're going to give you some room to to puff your project, but you're not going to get to lie about it in the way that Holmes did. And the idea would be, wow, people are going to be looking at the sentence and saying, yep, I'm going to, you know, clip my wings. I'm not going to make such fantastic claims. I don't know. Does criminal justice work that way? Do the people who are in Holmes's position today, tomorrow, and the next day pay attention to these sentences? We think they do. That's one of the reasons why we impose them. But it, it's hard as an empirical matter to know that that's the case. It's just that there have been so many you know, business arrangements that have gone bad lately that, that one starts wondering about what the next case is going to look like and whether it's going to be another Elizabeth Holmes or perhaps someone else entirely. Are there any studies about whether women are generally given lighter or harsher sentences than men charged with similar crimes? That's such a fantastic question. It's an empirical question, and I, I, I since I don't have the data at my uh, fingertips, I just wonder. I want to be careful. No, let me be clear. So, the historians of women's crime um, will make a claim, and 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 I believe it's true that when women are perceived to have violated the norms of their sex, that when women behave in ways that are contrary to being female or to being feminine, that they will be sentenced more severely, that women, in effect, who try to step into the man's world and to try to, you know, commit crimes in the way that a male criminal would would commit them, uh, tend to be punished more severely. But these are empirical claims, and I just don't want to take a position on the truth of this matter. There's certainly this perception that women are going to be punished more severely because the women who violate the criminal law, you know, have sort of violated the double bind, if you will, right? They have not only violated the criminal law, they have also violated the norms of femininity. And so that's what's interesting about Holmes here. We do feel that, you know, she was working in this very masculine space, that she was thriving according to the very assertive, maybe even aggressive norms of that space for how people were supposed to behave. She was hard charging. She was, you know, pushing the line all over the place. And then we discover committing fraud. She's doing the crime. But then suddenly when she's accused of it, we see that her whole defense is shaped around trying to portray her as this feminine victim of this male Svengali or this male abuser, right? So it's really interesting to see the way the stereotypes play out. Whatever the empirical reality, there's certainly an impression out there, and we see, you know, claims along these lines being made that women get punished more severely precisely because they're women who, you know, as I said, not just broke the commands of the criminal law, but they also broke the bonds of femininity. And Holmes seems to have had that in mind when creating this 
theory of defense and then the theory of sentencing that's portraying her as kind of, you know, the angel in the house, the mother of children and the wife of a man who shouldn't be ripped from hearth and home to go to prison, you know, that that would somehow be a violation of community norms to punish her. Judge wasn't buying it. Thanks so much, Anne. That's Anne Coughlin, a professor at the University of Virginia Law School. Judge Davila ordered Holmes to report to prison in April, though the facility hasn't been determined yet. Her lawyers asked him to let Holmes remain free on bail while she appeals, which could take years. The judge said he'll decide that at a later date. He also said he'll address the question of restitution for the victims at a future date. The government proposed that Holmes be ordered to pay $800 million to investors who lost money in Theranos, while the judge calculated the losses at $121 million. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.